think I can have the most emotional day um, with many breakdowns and then I walk into the gym and people, you know, give you a hug and smile and genuinely want to know how you're doing. Because mm. you said there's some days where you walk yeah. in and they look at you and they're like, oh. Yeah, yeah, there's a trick with that. Um, one of the ladies said, if I park bad, <laughs> it's not one of my good days. So they often look at how I park so they know <laughs> what mood They're I'm like, in. Oh, she's a bit crooked. Yeah. <laughs> she's not all with it. I'm Jazz Rawlinson and this is Reasons to Live, your go-to podcast for inspiring stories of hope, triumph and inspiration from everyday people. Real voices, important issues, no holding back. Ready to join? Welcome everybody to the Reasons to Live podcast. I'm Jazz Rawlinson and today's guest is an amazing young woman named Jodie. Um, Jodie and I both come from the same hometown of Coffs Harbour and um, I think Jodie's got a really uh, inspiring and very real story to share with the world. Um, Jodie lives with borderline personality disorder, which as many people would know, um, it, it has a huge impact on your day-to-day life, every single thing that you do. But it is also uh, a mental illness that is highly misunderstood at times. We talk a lot about depression and anxiety. Um, you know, we talk about bipolar disorder, but people don't talk so much about BPD. And one of the, I think, most common misconceptions is that people think that those with borderline personality disorder are just inherently bad people or they're just, their emotions are just always flying off the handle and they're just bad people. They're behaving badly and sometimes people just think they're attention seekers. So I think it's really great to hear from someone like Jodie who lives with BPD and learn a bit more about what her life is like on a day-to-day basis and how people can be there to sort of understand and support their loved ones when they are going through the struggles with BPD. So I'd just like to welcome you to the show, Jodie. Thank you. And um, thank you so much for being so honest with me. Um, As some people would know, we worked together on an article a few months ago, and it was really great to learn a bit more about your story there as well. (laughs) So as we talked about in the article, your early childhood was actually quite rough. So you shared with me that um, you were lucky to grow up with a very loving foster family, weren't yeah, you? very yeah. lucky. But before that, you were actually in quite an unhealthy uh, environment, isn't that right? Yeah. yeah, so my real mum and dad were addicted to drugs and alcohol um, and there was a lot of neglect. So not being fed, no nappies being changed, and there was a lot of abuse. So, yeah, I was just quite lucky um, to get out of there at mm. three months of age. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of people, you know, as people would be aware with research, mm. um, they say that those first seven years of your life are usually so foundational. Yes. So you were very blessed to be taken into a really loving home mm. at, at such a young age. But those early few months of neglect, they, they sort of stayed with you as you got older, didn't they? 
Yeah, and it's not something that I really realized until I really dug deep and addressed it. Um, so, like, I grew up thinking that my mum, my adopted mum, didn't love me, that I had to earn people's love, um, that I always had to get good grades or mm. be a perfect student. Um <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so it was really, mm. I can imagine it must have been really rough because your adopted mum wanted to be there for you, but I'm, yeah. I'm guessing like deep inside you still had like these, yeah, like these thoughts that you, she didn't really love you and she was going to leave you like your birth mum. Yeah, so I had um, a lot of abandonment fears. So mm. going into relationships with friends, I pretty much ditched them before they could abandon me. Mm. And I had the same feeling with my adopted parents and the feelings intensified as unfortunately because of my behaviours, I had to live at my grandparents. Mm. And so the feelings of abandonment really intensified at that stage. Mm. Well, let's just back up a bit yeah. to sort of those first few years at school. Mm. So... When you started in primary school, when do you think you first became aware that there were issues with your behaviour and what what were some of the things that you were doing? Was it just acting out or...? So the behaviours really started when I was seven, when my brother was born. I got quite jealous because at that stage I had been the baby. Yeah. So I would act out a lot, hitting, kicking, biting, destroying toys that belonged to Sam, um, you know, and then the other behaviours were basically just being really defiant. And did you understand at that time why you were behaving that way? No, not at all. I just knew from people having told me that mm. I was just a bad kid. I didn't know why. I was acting like this, and as I got older, I hated it, and I wanted to be like my sisters mm. and brother and be normal, but something within me just couldn't do it. Mm. And then as you got older, mm. do you remember how old you were when you started to experience, you know, depression and anxiety mm. and and how, you know, that escalated into self-harm thoughts? Yeah, so basically after I had to move into my grandparents, so when I was 12, and then because of the school environment, I started to get severely depressed, really angry, and I took it out of myself. So I started self-harming when I was 12 to a certain extent. And then going through through high school, mm. so when you did start to experience that depression and feel like self-harm was the only way to cope, yeah. um, did you have any friends or family or teachers that you tried to ex reach out to to talk about how you were feeling? Basically, I had no friends because um, I was severely bullied by everyone in my year. So I was quite lonely and there weren't many teachers that I actually could trust mm. 
to open up to, so I pretty much just kept it hidden. Yeah. Mm. And then you mentioned earlier that mm. there came a point where you had to go and live with your grandparents. Yeah. And from a chat we had earlier this year, I mm. believe that was because you said um, they felt that it was it was the safest option for your other siblings. Yes, that's true. And that must have been really hard as a teenager to to live with that mm. that knowledge that your family didn't think that your siblings were safe when you were around. How did that affect you? Um, yeah, so it hit me pretty hard, um, and I believe that's why the depression really started to come in to play because I felt that I had pretty much been rejected by my second family mm. and so I was feeling very unloved, very misunderstood. Um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, I can only try to imagine like mm. what it would be like to to be separated from your family, a family that, you know, had always been so stable yeah. for you and, and, you know, really loving from from the environment you came from. Yeah, and, maybe. and I think the hardest thing for me was jealousy because mm-hmm. I knew I couldn't change my behaviour even though I wanted to, but because of that I didn't go on family holidays, I was excluded, mm-hmm. um, and that was mainly just because mum and dad and the kids couldn't take the behaviour because mm-hmm. it was quite abusive and just really horrible. Mm. And I remember you sharing a story with me about how you used to really, as, as one of the things you struggle with with BPD, mm. is that you really struggle with any kind of change. Yes. And I remember you sharing a story with me that um, you went to school one day and there was a substitute teacher yeah. there, wasn't there? Yeah. And what happened that day? Um, so pretty much walked into my a year eight, nine class and wasn't pre-warned that there was a different teacher there. So I pretty much flipped out. I, you know, flipped desks. You and literally started, flipped a table. Yeah, flipped a table, started swearing yeah. and stormed out mm. and refused to go back to the class. And I can imagine, like, for most people in the class, they would have just been like, what? Yeah. Like, that seems like a very over-the-top reaction. Yeah, there was no understanding amongst any of my peers, which mm. is why I didn't have any friends. Mm. And so what are some of the other, like, what are some of the main symptoms mm. of borderline personality disorder? For people who have maybe never heard of it before, yeah. Um what are the main symptoms yeah. and how how do they which ones affect yourself? Yeah, so there's quite a few. The first one is black and white thinking. So everything is either good or it's either bad. There's no grey, mm-hmm. no compromise. So if I woke up, had a really good morning, went to gym, had a fight with a friend, the day's been bad, yep. tomorrow's gonna be bad. And it gets to the point where you just can't see that things will get better. Mm. And the other major one is mood instability. Yeah. So basically we never are flatlined in our mood. We're always either on a high or a low mm. or in a process of getting to the high or the low. And how that affects me is 
you know, I can be fine and then he'll be out, out at the gym and I just get a severe anxiety meltdown. Um, and each time I have an episode, it can be quite exhausting. Mm. So mentally and physically, you get really tired. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine. Because I know how exhausting it is just when, um, you know, if you have a disagreement with yeah. a loved one or there's, you know, like times where I've um, had really good friendships that have, you know, sort of broken down mm. or there's a miscommunication and you're just overthinking everything yes. in your head. It's so exhausting. And, um, yeah, so I can, uh, can only imagine how much it would take it out of you when yes. that's happening every day mm. because every day your mood is... It just fluctuates yes. up and down, up and down. Yeah, so it's not stable or consistent. Mm. So I don't have just a good day or a bad day. I can change from good morning, bad afternoon, okay night. Yeah. And, yeah, it just gets really hard to keep up with it. Mm. I think you, you know, you should give yourself more credit mm. for how, how well you do manage because yeah. – um, it's something that you've had to live with every day from such a young age. Yes. Um, and and so just to, you know, sort of go back to mm. those early years, when you were going through high school, um, what was the real breaking point for you where you felt like no one understands me and and there's really only one, one way out for me? Yeah, so it was – Quite early, so when I was 13, nearly 14, um, because I was consistently bullied at school, excluded from home life, uh, at my grandparents, not shown a lot of love, if anything went wrong, I was blamed for it. Mm. So by 13, 14, I just decided that, you know, the people would be better without me and that I'd cause a lot less pain on people by not being on the earth. Um, but I didn't have a suicide attempt till I was ni- 19. But as a teenager, I self-harmed quite severely mm. every day, every night. Yeah. And mm. when you got to that really dark space when you were around yeah. 19 or so, um, when you felt like suicide was going yeah. to be the only way out... By that point, had you had any diagnosis as to what you were going through? No. So I hadn't been um, diagnosed with anything by any professional. My family has sought out psychiatrists and doctors and they refused to diagnose me with anything. Right. So... And that's quite a common mm, thing too from people I've spoken with because... mm. Um, borderline personality d- disorder because it mimics so many other yes. types of mental health issues or illnesses. Mm. People are quite often diagnosed with just having major depressive symptom or um, anxiety mm. or all types of things. And and that was the case for you too, wasn't it? Yeah. So when I first got diagnosed at around 20, they just said I had you know, a lot of anger and a lot of anxiety and mm. just a deep depression and medication and hospital stay would fix it. 
And it didn't, did it? No, unfortunately not. And so you went into mental health care when you were around 20? Yes. Is that right? Yep. And then when you came out of there, um, did you feel like things were going to get better or you'd improved at all? Um, at that point, I thought, yeah, things are good. I'm not as up and down. Um, I can cope with things. I'm sleeping better. I'm eating better. You know, medication's working. So if I take it, it'll be sweet. I can manage life. Yeah. yeah. And so fast forward a little bit. Yeah. When, when was it that you first got the proper diagnosis? Um, I know it was in my 20s. So it would have been about 25. So about four years ago wow. that um, a psychiatrist actually sat me down and said, this is what you've got. Yeah. And it just explained all my symptoms, all my behaviour from my past. It just all fit into that diagnosis. Mm. And did you feel a massive sense of relief when you got that diagnosis? Because there was actually a proper explanation for your behaviour? Yeah, so I didn't feel like, People could blame it on attention, mm. wanting attention or being jealous. or So it was a huge relief to actually get a diagnosis so that we could start working towards recovery. Mm. Yeah, I, I can imagine, um, you know, you probably felt a little, I don't know, you, you probably felt a bit anxious about what this meant, but yeah, at least you had something that explained why you felt the way you did. Yeah. It wasn't just in my head <laughs> yeah. or, or just depression. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a great relief to actually know something and to work towards recovery, mm. which took a long time. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the, and you touched on this earlier, one yeah. of the, the um, symptoms of BPD is that it has a huge impact on relationships. Yes. And that can be, uh, you know, intimate relationships, friendships, um, yeah. family members. Um, and, and you know, obviously you, you spoke about how it had a really major impact on your family life yes. growing up. Um, how did it impact, and, and you also mentioned that it impacted on friendships yes. too. Um, how did it impact on, um, how did it impact on close relationships with partners and, and did you, know how to have a healthy relationship at that stage? Um, I don't believe I knew how to have a healthy relationship. Um, I chose quite abusive guys or guys who are into drugs that led me down the wrong path. Mm. So every single guy I chose was abusive in some sort of way towards yep. me. So I didn't know how to have healthy relationships because... I didn't really understand and respect and love myself. Yeah. So if I That's didn't, what I was going to ask. Yeah. Do you think you chose them because you felt that that was what you deserved in some sort of way? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Looking at it from today, I thought I deserved... To be treated like trash or something like exactly, that. Exactly, because it's something I got used to mm. um, growing up, really. Yeah. And so... When you finally you mm. finally got that diagnosis when you were around twenty four yes. or so, and then they started to, to put you on medication. Yes, did that medication help straight away? 
Uh, definitely not straight away. I still had quite a lot of hospital admissions, quite a lot of suicide attempts. But I did feel that the sleeping had gotten better because of the medication I was mm-hmm. on. Because that's a major, um, a major part of BPD as well is the yes. lack of sleep. Yes. And I can sympathise with that because, <laughs> you know, just having like 15 months of insomnia yeah. after having a baby, like I know how awful you feel and, and it impacts yeah. on everything, like not just your mood but you, no. you don't want to eat healthy, you just mm. want to eat crap because you feel like crap when yeah. you wake up. Um, so, I, yeah, I can imagine that would have made it so hard as well to have like healthy functional relationships and um, – but one of the things that I think is really impressive about you is that you are so dedicated to, like, staying healthy and yes. fit. And that's been, like, a super big part of your recovery, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Jim has been what I would call literally many times a lifesaver. Mm. So there's certain days that I would just wake up and go, I can't push through it anymore. And then I'd be like, oh, you know what, I'll go to gym. I'll go to this class and at the end of it, you feel so much better because of the adrenaline pumping in. Um, But yeah, definitely fitness for me is a key to staying healthy and not just physically healthy, but mentally healthy. Yeah. And, and, um, you were telling me earlier that you have such a great relationship with the women at your gym and that they've been a huge part in supporting you. Um, yeah, what's it what's it like when you walk into the, you know, what's your sort of daily life where you, you know, you wake up, yeah. you might have had a shitty night of sleep, yeah. you feel awful. Um, when you walk into the gym and, and you're surrounded by those women, what's that like? It's just amazing. It just changes everything. I can have the most emotional day um, with many breakdowns and then I walk into the gym and, People, you know, give you a hug and smile and genuinely want to know how you're doing. Mm. And they're just very supportive. If I need space to do my own training and to think, they will leave me be. Mm. Or if I want to be chatty and... Because you said there's some days where you walk yeah. in and they look at you and they're like, oh, yeah, it's <laughs> like she's going to bash me. I might stay away. Yeah, there's a trick with that. Um, one of the ladies said, if I park bad, it's not one of my good days. So they often look at how I park so they know <laughs> what mood like, I'm in. Oh, oh, she's a bit crooked. Yeah. <laughs> she's not all with it. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. Like that you found yeah. a place that feels like home for you and you can be yeah. yourself there. And I think that's the biggest thing that I can be myself. Mm. It's okay for me to go in and be really emotional and have anxiety attacks and no one expects me to change and they just basically, you know, make you laugh to help you get through it. Yep. And you were sharing with me earlier a story about one of um, one of the ladies at your gym. Was it your PT? Instructor? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about, like, the relationship you guys have. Yeah, so I started doing PT probably about two months ago and I try to do it twice every month mm-hmm. or if I can afford it fortnight and there's just 
it's like a mother-daughter relationship, really. Um, through the training, I've noticed not only my physical change, but my mental change. Mm. So because of her, I've learned to love myself. I've learned to laugh at my mistakes and get right back up. And she's always been there just to support me. If there's days that I need to chat or if there's days that I just need to train really hard. Um, but yeah, like every session we walk out of where she's got me in tears from <laughs> laughter. And that's it, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cause not, I don't know that many people would have that sort of close relationship with their PT instructor or, you know, someone. At yeah. The gym. I think, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't have a close relationship with the PT. They'd just see it as a working, mm. but because of this lady, she's just not only working on me physically, but she's also supporting me mentally. And because of that, I've been able to grow quite a bit. Mm. And so obviously fitness is like a huge part of your day-to-day management. Yes. Um, but what are some other ways that you manage those bad times and those low moods? Um, a lot of things will be distraction. So I now have a therapy bird. So yeah, pe- yeah, penguin. penguin. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll get him out and play with him, put music on as loud as I can, go have a really nice hot shower or bath, go for a drive, go to church. So yeah, there's just actually quite a lot of things. And you've also got um different. Oh, I can't remember what it was called, but you've got like a box of yes, yeah, sensory toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've got a kit that's got sensory items because with BPD, a lot of people get overloaded because we hear and see, smell everything. Yeah, it's not just one little area. So if we do go out and we're looking at the crowd of people and the noise, and it can get quite overwhelming. Mm. So, yeah, I've got a box of sensory items that just include slime, putty, little fidget toys, some essential oils, a little light LED light tree. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I just find that those things just help me really draw back into reality. Mm. Yeah, and that's awesome. Mm. Like, I think... There's nothing to be ashamed of in having those things to rely on? No. At first, I was very ashamed. Um, I tried to discreetly take it to gym and try and hide it. Yep. Um, same with church. I'd try to sit at the back and hide that I've got them. Mm. Because in my mind, what, 29-year-old had toys that yep. they played with. Mm. Um, but now I just see them as something to keep my hands busy, something to keep my mind focused. Yeah. So I bring them literally everywhere I go. Yeah, and I think, like you said, there's no shame in that because so many people that, you know, if you think about people that suffer with addictions, um, one of the biggest things for people, for smokers when they Mm. try to quit, is that they need that thing in their hand. Yes. Because it's become a habit just to be holding something. Exactly, yeah. So... You know, I've heard of people who were former smokers and um, well, it was someone I used to live with. Yeah. She started, oh, I 
can't even remember what it was, but she started carrying something around everywhere. Yeah. It, I think it might have even been like a pencil or something. Yeah. And because she, when she started craving that cigarette, she just needed that thing that she was holding with her fingers. Mm. And, or it might have even been a straw. And yeah. she'd walk around and just be like sipping on the straw or like chewing on the end yeah. of it. Yeah. Um, so just like you said, something to keep your hands occupied mm. to get you out of your mind a bit, I think. Yeah, because yeah. for me, when I get to the point of wanting to self-harm, it's, I've got a lot of anger and frustration mm. in myself and I don't know how to healthily uh, deal with it. So I would turn to self-harming. But now, like I said, I can throw this ball as hard as I wanted a yeah, wall yeah. or really be aggressive with the putty or and it's actually <laughs> not gonna hurt me like tearing oh yeah putty. there's been days i've slammed them against walls i've broken many balls from <laughs> throwing them against walls but in the end it doesn't hurt the wall exactly. it doesn't hurt me the anger's out yeah and that's and and that's a great way to deal yeah. with those feelings um and coming back to like what what we were talking about earlier yeah. with BPD not really being talked about and understood yeah. as much as other mental illnesses. Mm. Um, like when, if you were talking to say the loved one of someone who's got BPD, mm. how would you, rec- you know, what would you suggest in terms of like the best way to help someone when they're going through those rough moments? Um, I think for me, what's really helped me is, just the support like every time I've been really sick and I've ended in hospital my mom and my dad whether they've understood it whether they're angry at me for doing what I've done they're still being there and just said we love you Mm. so I think for me to see unlimited support from family members and I think that and I guess it's probably difficult mm. because it's got to be that balance between yes. not enabling somebody's yes. behaviour but letting them understand mm. that you're there for them. Yeah. How, it, how do your family sort of navigate that that fine line? Um, when I was in hospital and I used to be quite aggressive in self-harm, they would say, we're not going to come visit you now you, unless you don't self-harm. You've got to not self-harm because... Yeah. We don't want to reward you for that. So I knew they were still there because they told me they still loved me, but that they did not approve of the behaviour that I was doing, so therefore would not come to reward me for that behaviour. So eventually I started to see, well, if I want to see mum and dad, I can't self-harm. Did you find that worked for you, that sort of tough love approach? Yeah, definitely. Because, um, yeah, just now I look at it and when I go through a hard time, I just try to think back to those periods and go, well, I've got an amazing relationship with my mom and my dad mm. and my whole family, um, that if I do start to go back down that way, it would just, I'd just lose all their support. Mm. Yeah. And stability. And so a lot of people who are close to you or, yeah. you know, know you quite well would know that you went through a really rough time recently yeah um, and it was probably one of one of your hardest um 
breakdown period? Yeah, it was. And during that time, uh, you said that one of your self-harm, one of the things that you relied on as part of your self-harm was hair pulling? Yes. Yeah. So, so can you share a bit about what was happening during that time and, and why you, you know, what it was that made you feel a need to, to do that? Yeah. Um, I just woke up one morning, everything was fine, and then that afternoon, just took an overdose, there was no prior thoughts to harming myself, and while I was in hospital, yeah, the hair pulling was just quite consistent to the point that I had nothing left. Um, I don't really remember a lot about that time, from what the nurses have told me, I was in a very severe psychotic state that they couldn't talk to me, couldn't interact with me, and that I'd just sit there in hair pull. Mm. So. And that's been, mm. you would, you know, you shared a bit over the last month or so about how yeah. it's been really difficult for you just coming to terms with, um, you know, not, not looking the way that you're used to looking, like you're used to having long hair. Yeah. And, and um, it's kind of surprising how we hide behind our hair. Like for a lot of us, mm. unless we make the decision to sort of go short with our hair yeah. or, or shave our hair, um, it's not until then that you sort of realise that that it's kind of a bit of a um, it's it's like a it's like part of your identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because for me, I was known for my crazy hairstyles. You know, I'd go to gym with cute little pigtails <laughs> and all these fancy plaits and braids that I'd do and yeah, when you wanted to hide, you could have the hair there, Mm. but having no hair, it was just, I cried the first time I had to get the last little bit shaved off Mm. because I didn't look like me. And I was like, who, who is this person? Where am I? And, um, yeah, it's only been, over the last month that I've actually started to embrace having the no mm-hmm. hair and because it hid all my flaws and vulnerabilities, now that they're so open, I can't pretend. Mm. So things have to be dealt with. Yeah. They can't be hidden because I can't hide them. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I think so many of us wouldn't wouldn't even, we wouldn't think about that with no. ourselves. We would until, like you said, you're in that position yeah. where you're like, damn, I've really got to yeah. face up to these things. Yes. And, and you were, and so you were sharing, you went to gym recently and, yeah. um, one of your instructors was talking to you about, what was it? She said something really special to you about embracing the way that you look or seeing yourself as beautiful, even though you don't feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I went back to Zumba and that was quite a shock for everyone at the gym. Mm. But my Zumba teacher just came over the first time and goes, you're beautiful the way you are. And I just started crying because I'm like, I'm not, I've got bored. And <laughs> um, so yeah, she was just really supportive and she's like, just be who you are and you know, now that you've got this, learn to rock it, embrace it. Yeah. And the trainers all the time tell me that I'm rocking it and embracing it. 
Um, and so, yeah. And you started to feel a bit more like feeling beautiful in who you are and strong in who you are. Yeah, so that's a funny thing. When I had hair, I totally hated how I looked. Just my whole body, I did not like myself. But since I've had to learn to embrace having the no hair, I've actually started to see myself as more beautiful because the cheekbones stand out. or mm. And, yeah, I'm starting to see myself as beautiful and starting to embrace it by becoming more feminine. Um, yeah, because you've got all these yes. cute little headbands Headbows, now that you rock. Yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah, I have a hair bow for every single day. <laughs> That I love to wear. <laughs> and I think that's awesome because it's a, a new way of like discovering, you know, discovering, uh, you know, new fashion yeah. styles and, and yeah, like a new identity from, from, you know, a new and more positive and, and strong identity from the one you had before. Yeah, it's definitely since, um, yeah, I have had my hair shaved, um, I've just been able to embrace things a lot more, be really open and honest, support other people. Um, It's just really changed me, and I see it as a new start. Mm. Like, literally, my hair's got to regrow, and (laughs) I'm starting starting to, you know, regrow and towards a more positive Mm. aspect of life. Yeah, I so, think that's great. Yeah. And what are you looking forward to in the year ahead for 2019? Hmm, that's quite hard to say. <laughs> I'm not normally one that thinks about the future too much. Um, but for me, I think my number one goal would be just managing my health so that yeah. I stay out of hospital and out of the mental health unit and just face each day and the challenges of life as they come and what's your message for someone out there who's struggling right now with borderline personality disorder and and feels like Mm. no one understands them and they're really alone and and they don't know you know how to how to get through the next day what would you sort of say to that person who's maybe been where you Mm. where you've been um I would just say keep going. Like, I know personally how hard that is when you're in that frame of mind, but I used to just take it 10 minutes at a time. Yeah. Okay, I got through that 10 minutes. Now I've got to face another 10 minutes. And you're not alone. Um, There's a lot of support groups out there now. I'm actually on one on Facebook. That is for borderline personality people and we all just chat and support each other. But yeah, just keep going. I think is my message because it, it will get better. Mm. And yeah. Well, it has definitely like for you, you've been through so many yes. moments, but you've, you're still here and you found a way to get through each of those times, even if yeah. that's meant accepting help and, mm. and going into acute care, you know. So I think the hardest thing for me was accepting the help. Yeah. Oh, I didn't want to go into hospital because I'd failed. Or, But in reality, yeah, it's accepting that help has really changed me because I've learned to understand it more from the nurses that were in mm. the hospital um and yeah just have the support to get through it and 
at the end of each chat, I always mm-hmm. like to ask each person, you know, if you think about your life and, yeah. and everything you've been through and where you are now, yeah. um, what is your reason to live one more day every day? Yeah, so basically my reason to live is to be a survivor. I don't want to be another statistic. Mm. Um, I've had many friends that have gone down that path that have lost their fight and I've promised to them that I will be strong and I will continue the fight for them. So my reason to leave is I do not want to be another statistic. I don't want another mother to lose their daughter because I've seen the effects of it. Mm. Yeah. And that's so powerful and that's such a, mm. a beautiful reason to yeah. and such an important reason yes. to keep on living. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jodie, for sharing your story with me. And thank you. I know it will inspire and help a lot of other people. Um, and I just, yeah, I want to honour you for being so brave and so real and keep rocking those headphones. <laughs> and, um, yeah, take care and all the best. You do, bye.